Anna, I will be stage managing for the rest of my life. I know. <laughs> I am a stage manager. If I'm not stage managing on the stage, I'm definitely stage managing my family. It's important for little girls to watch the behind the scenes of The Mandalorian and see that it's not all white guys. There is no single better moment than being on a stage with a problem. Something's not working, something's not there. I actually love that part of the job. Welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Rod. And my name is Anna Aguilera. Danny Beller-Pelucas joined us today to talk about the world of technology beyond automation and how they use in different areas of the entertainment industry. We have a few playlists with our episodes talking about automation and stage management, if you'd like to refer to those. On episode 34, Jamil Hayat shares with us some of his experiences on theme entertainment as well. Danny Beller-Pelucas has always been an entertainment industry leader. As Cirque du Soleil's first female head of automation, she's helped build and design some of the most complex kinetic production experiences the world has ever seen. After her work at Cirque, FTSI, and as a freelance consultant, Danny found herself at her dream job, Walt Disney Imagineering. As an Imagineer, she helped create and gathered a few awards for ride experiences such as Star Wars, Rise of the Resistance, and Pirates of the Caribbean attraction in Shanghai, China. After conquering her dream job, Danny looked to utilize her team building show control and large-scale production experience in an exciting and emerging field, virtual production. Taking up a new job at Lux Machina as Director of Physical Production, Danny is leading a team of producers who are helping refine, design, educate on, and deploy in-camera visual effects solutions for the entertainment industry. Danny, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's really great to be here. It's great to see your face. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. Wow. You have done so much in your career so far. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So that was your bio, but tell me a little bit about why you got into this industry and what fascinates you about uh, the technologies that you're working in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up as a kid that was really excited about computers and, you know, playing with items and pushing. I think I programmed my first program when I was like seven or eight years old on a little Apple IIe and I always enjoyed the technology side. And then I went to college with an original like plan to major in physics and become an astronaut and then started taking theater classes and loved that in theater, there are no right answers. There are only the answers we find. And I just was like, I remember telling my parents, but mom, it's amazing. And so I kind of fell in this world where I, I've, as you know, I've done a little bit of stage management, a little bit of automation, um, always kind of sharing that combination of artistic and technical and bringing that together. And through the last few years, I've really had the opportunity to then take that to lead the conversation about how do we use technology to feed creativity. And it's been kind of nice having the both sides of my brain. I've got the math side of my brain, and then I have the acting degree side of my brain to help that conversation. I love that combination of feeding uh, technical to feed the creative. Can you expand a little bit on that in how that works in your current job? Or maybe you should talk about a little bit what you're currently, explain what you do right now and then the, how that works because that might be a bit of a leap. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, currently I work for a company, Lux Machina, and we create large scale volumes. Uh, we design, we build, we operate. And these volumes can use a different forms of playback, but generally we use a real-time game engine. So it gives the opportunity for the film and television industry to have a space where we put actors and directors in the actual space that they're going to uh, eventually make it to screen. So it's final pixel. When they walk away from the stage, they frequently have the piece that is what they're going to produce. So you know, we used to put people on green screens in order to do that. And we still do. And there's still reasons. You can even put a green screen on an LED wall if you wish to. But if we don't use a green screen, we have the opportunity to say, you know, you're standing in a cave and in that cave, everybody can see the same thing. They can all have the same reference for the actor. You have the, it's really strange. You really do walk into the space and it's like, I've now walked into this desert landscape. 
Um, and then when the director refers to things like everybody look at the waterfall, there's a waterfall there and that it all makes sense to everyone. So from an acting standpoint, it allows us to go back to that organic placemaking that, you know, we all kind of grew up in theater school being able to do and yet using the technology to bring in game engine assets, to bring in these fantastical worlds that we couldn't build or wouldn't build because there's moving pieces behind us. So it's a really cool thing that we do and it's the technology that feeds that but that technology is new and it's it's being developed as we speak and so a lot of what I do is help everybody on the stage get comfortable with where we are in that technology in that things don't always go exactly the way we expect things sometimes aren't exactly what the expectation uh what the plan is for the day and so it's a lot of working with the team to manage those expectations, know where we can push, know where we can't push, know the things that are going to come into it. And the truth is like the company that I work for is really a tremendous group of creative geniuses who understand all of the edges of that and know how to come in and make sure that we're going to get the absolute best product every day. It's, it's really kind of incredible when you're working with the like top of the field. It's kind of awesome. So you're still stage managing in some sense, right? Sounds like it. <laughs> Anna, I will be stage managing for the rest of my life. I know. <laughs> I am a stage manager. If I'm not stage managing on the stage, I'm definitely stage managing my family. I sent out a travel itinerary once for a like family trip that had call times. And, you know, Alan's and my wedding invitation had call times on it. Let's be clear. <laughs> um, so, you know, I really think that stage managers in many ways, and I think you and I have talked about this before, the ability of a stage manager to communicate, to bring people onto the same page, to um, to make everyone feel seen and heard in the space, which especially right now with where our national conversation is, is so important that we're making sure that all voices have a voice and that it doesn't have to be complicated to do that. I think that that will always be skills that every organization can use, which is why I personally think stage managers should rule the world, but that's just me. Maybe they do or they will. <laughs> <laughs> How do you see the relationship between stage management and automation? So um, this is an interesting one for me. Um, I started with Cirque du Soleil as a head of automation. I came from cruise ships. And in cruise ships, the stage manager backstage frequently runs the automation. So it's one person and you have the responsibility of both things. And when I moved to Cirque, definitely automation was the thing that was harder for them to find. So they brought me in to do automation. And I loved traveling the world, setting up these hardcore systems, like it was a lot of fun. But what I missed is the stage management side. I missed that ability to call and put a show together, right? That that attempt every night to make it to the perfect show, the nights you know where you walk out of the booth and you're like, nailed it. And then there's nights you walk out of the booth and you're like, so close. <laughs> so I was definitely missing that. And um, I decided that I wanted to go back to stage management. So I actually applied for an MFA program and was accepted and uh, also was applying for jobs throughout Cirque and got hired as a stage manager on Mystere during that whole, at the same week I was admitted to an MFA program and offered the Cirque job. And I had to decide like which one I was going to do. And I decided that the Cirque job was probably what I was getting the MFA to be able to do. So I should take the Cirque job. And I became a calling stage manager at Bastaire. And I think the understanding of automation and how that works as a calling stage manager in a large automation show is hugely beneficial. You understand how the pieces are supposed to fit. You know where we've run into challenges. And you can also think quickly on your feet of what the solutions are, of course, depending on an amazing automation team. To, to know their part of it and be able to help you find those solutions What I ended up eventually through many years of my career putting that into is show programming at Walt Disney Imagineering. And a show programmer at Imagineering, basically when you ride an attraction and you're going through the attraction, audio, lights, all these things go off around you. Um, and the show programmers who programs those, we program them forever. Uh, they run, you know, every 30 seconds for each new attraction, each new thing to come by. And I liken it to my calling the show forever. So I have the opportunity to put to lay in a track that will always be the way the show is called to hit that artistic moment. So now I no longer have to walk out of the booth and go so close. 
it's going to work every time. And so I think that stage management and automation, it's those two sides. It's again, it's the technical, it's the creative, it's the timing, and I love putting them together. So you can nail it every every 30 seconds. <laughs> I'm telling you. I read an interview once fairly recently with someone that was talking about how uh, sometimes in their shows, like in their large automation shows, they might have a queue every minute that's going off. And I was like, so I have 24 vehicles running through this space at any given time. And each of those vehicles is getting, so I technically have 24 queues running every 30 seconds. So it's a slightly different way of thinking about that large scale automation. We have a lot of large effects that are resetting, especially in the most recent show, Star Wars Rise of the Resistance, like there's a ton of great big things that happen and have to reset out of the eye of the people coming in for the next time. So it's a lot of that magic. And how long does that process, because I can imagine that there's a there's a design process for that that ride to be in existence and all the mechanical moving parts for it. And then once they have that, does the programming start in the design phase or does it start once it's all come together? And then how long does that programming take in, in terms of, okay, now I start to finish? Is it, a, is it a few months? Is it a year? Is it is it how long? It kind of goes in and starts and goes in phases. So there's definitely a sequence design early on in the design. Like creative will have created something and say, this is what we're looking to do. And then a show design, a sequence designer comes in and says, this is how I think we accomplish that. So I was able to do that and go, okay, this is a reset I'm concerned about. This is a place where I don't think that our media servers can get there as quickly as you want them to. So we need to go look at that. Um, the show programmer has that like deep knowledge of what do all the systems take and how do I bring them all together? So we have that phase. And then we get to the point where we start actually laying in queues. Um, Interestingly, with what I'm currently doing, using a game engine to run the systems uh, that we use, that same game engine we use to program Rise of the Resistance. So we had the opportunity to see it in game engine being queued from our actual system. So the audio actually cues audio, video actually cues video, show control is queuing show control, which cues things in the game. So you have the opportunity to see what it's going to look like in the final attraction. So we can do creative reviews with that game engine before we ever make it to the attraction. When we get to the attraction, time is extremely limited. That's one of the challenges, right? Everybody needs time in that box. Uh, Ride being a humongous amount of that time. They have safety programs they have to do. They are always going to win. They're always going to get more time than show. So a lot of the work we do is to prep and prepare so that we are as ready as possible when we walk in the door to get as much out of the time that we have and be able to leave. It still is a process of a few months of programming in and out like in that space, but it's definitely never as long as you want it to be. But it it definitely gives you the opportunity to see it and then get to a point where you just run it and run it and run it and run it. I mean, if you think about it, you you get to a show, you get it programmed and you have that show ready and then you get maybe nine or 10 opportunities to run it, but the show is running in a linear fashion and it's only one show. We start to discover things as the vehicles get closer together, as more vehicles, we start to discover wireless, you know, all these things that come into the fine tuning of the show. You suddenly discover you can see that vehicle from the vehicle behind you. Well, we got to go fix that. So there's a lot of those, that tweaking that happens. And then how do you maintain that and you make sure that you keep running it smoothly throughout operation? One of the big things that I worked on when I was at WDI is bringing the parks team into the fold. So as we were building the attraction, we were we had engineers beside us that were building it, programming it, you know, and learning with us so that when we walk away, they know the show as well as we do. Uh, WDI obviously has teams that go out and do spot checks and there's teams in the park that are responsible for maintaining the show, but there's a lot of shows for them to be maintaining. So I think the most important thing is that the maintenance and the teams that work at the park are educated with us and have the opportunity to also feel that pride of ownership in the show so that when we step away, they know what it's supposed to look like too. And so how often do you do you often go back and review it 12 months or a year later, so six months to 12 months later, or no, it's kind of like done, dusted? Once the Imagineers step away, they step away. Like the uh, show quality team takes over in the park and it's their responsibility to maintain. I have had the opportunity to go back and ride Pirates in Shanghai 
um, one time. Um, actually, I think, Anna, just after I saw you, we took a trip to Shanghai and I got the chance to write it. It was amazing to see it away from the stress of install and opening and all of those steps and to see how well the park team had maintained it. And that looked absolutely gorgeous. And then every time I have a friend that goes to Shanghai, I always say, go ride pirates. Tell me how it looks. <laughs> I heard it's amazing. I really just want them to tell me it looks awesome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, once you step away, it's in the hands of show quality. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to make my um, my husband Jay go next time he has to go to Shanghai Disney. So he must go on Pirates of the Caribbean because he just goes into the park, yeah. and works, comes out, goes into the park, and works. Like take a ride, come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was your sort of motivation to like? move from WDI into you know your current job was it the excitement of the new technology was it you wanted to be home more what was your motivation (laughs) home more I just flew back from London so not so much (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so I really think it was uh I think over the course of like rise of the resistance was this amazing attraction to open And it felt incredible, but it also, even while we were doing it, we were very aware that what we were doing was something very special. The level of technology, the level of commitment of uh, of finances and the reality of the franchise of Star Wars, I don't know that that combination is going to exist for me again for a very long time in an attraction. So, you know, it was even as we were finishing that up, my eye had started to consider I did have the opportunity the day that we opened Star Wars Rise of the Resistance in Anaheim to like stand with the executive creative and executive producer and myself and the three of us spoke for the attraction. It felt like this absolute like amazing, like pinnacle of my career. I'm just going to go back to WDI and rest on my laurels. This is going to be amazing, right? And then I'm sure you're aware that the world changed in March of 2020 after we had opened. And um, that entire team was furloughed and it was rough. It was really hard to go from this absolute top amazing moment to this moment of like, they don't need me. I'm not necessary. I'm not, uh, what was the word they used? I can't think of it, but it was, it was like, you know, I'm not uh, required. It was hard. It was a little bit nicer to see all the people around me and to realize that it clearly wasn't talent because some of the most amazing talents I've ever worked with were also furloughed alongside me at WDI. It was a very large group. Most of our RISE team, in fact, all three of those people who had stood with me on that opening day, we were all furloughed together. It was rough. But in a way, it was great because it gave me the opportunity to really think about what did I want, what was so important to me about what I was doing. And what did I want for my future? And I think through that, I realized that while I adored working at WDI and while I certainly wouldn't close the window on working with them again in the future, I was looking for what that next step of technology was. And I was pretty sure that for Imagineering, it wasn't probably going to fit with my career path for a little while. You know, there were a lot of other things I wanted to do. I wanted to have the opportunity to have more influence in a smaller organization. I wanted the opportunity to have more influence, to hire people, to get more diversity on our teams. One of the things we were proud of at Rise and through Galaxy's Edge is half of our team was female, which was very rare as a programming team to have that occur. And that was like huge for us to have so many strong female technical leaders within our group. I wanted to go take that someplace else too. I wanted to have that opportunity. So a friend of mine mentioned that she had some friends in virtual production. And I think like everyone else, I had watched the behind the scenes of the Mandalorian and seen what these LED volumes were and what virtual production was. And one of the names that was associated with that was Lux Machina. Uh, We worked on the first season of the Mandalorian. And so she said, well, I have some friends over there. They're hiring some people. You should talk to them. And I had, like even their reel spoke to me. I've been saying technology fuels creativity for so many years. It's literally in their reel. <laughs> um, it's right. So I was like, oh man, these are my people. And it was just such a great conversation. My first conversations with the founders were fantastic. Uh, I felt like I was going to get the opportunity to have an influence in strategy, which I was 
WDI is a huge organization within a huge organization within a huge organization. So I was very excited to get the opportunity to work for a smaller company. And virtual production in general, the in-camera visual effects just felt like that next exciting step of like taking high-level technology to feed high-level creativity with a whole bunch of geniuses. You know, I'm a fan of being at the table with all the smartest guys in the room and helping harness that and helping them figure out how to do things. So that was what really drew me to Lux is that information and um, honestly, the charisma of our founders who just really were so positive from day one of how much they wanted me, which coming from that challenge of WDI and that furlough, I was really ready to hear that. It really helped. (laughs) I'd like to um, pick your brain a little bit more on how do you see we could improve a little bit more of gender equality or equity? But like, just start with representation, maybe. And um, yeah. Yeah, I think I hear all the time, well, there just weren't any women that applied. Or there just weren't any people of color who applied, right? I hear that constantly from different groups. Well, I just don't know what to do. And I think the secret is we have to start reaching deeper into those communities. We have to start earlier. I have taken my own uh, advice over the last year and I accept everything. When someone says to me, do you want to talk about it? Do you want to come? I'm speaking to a all girls robot first team next month. Do you want to come, you know, chat with us? Do you want to talk about what's possible? Do you want to help us find an education program? I think those are the secrets. Yes, we can do better about when we get those resumes, looking for that person that we can at least get the interview to like get somebody in the in the room, give them a chance to prove to us that they're the person we should hire. But before that, we got to get more diversity in those resumes. And to get more diversity in the resumes, we have to reach earlier into the community. So I I think that's the easiest and, and smartest and fastest way to do it. Because the truth is, it's really hard for me to go out right now and find someone who is a video engineer ready to work in our systems that um, has all the skills that I need in all those levels of diversity I'd like them to be. They they don't exist as much. It is hard to find them. The resumes aren't what they apply with, right? So, okay, if I can't fix it there and I can get out and I can get the message out and I can, you know, there are women's organizations that we reach out to to try and get more resumes. But, but really what I want to do is increase the number of people who are out there to apply. So to do that, I'm going to go back to colleges. I'm going to go back to high schools. I'm going to go back to elementary schools and make sure we're inspiring women to follow STEM careers and make sure we're letting those little girls who get told that math isn't cool, math is wicked cool. And that's what gets you there. You know, I mean, uh, the amount of math that I still do on a regular basis or the skills that I learned because math and science were things that I was really excited about in junior high. That's how I got to where I am. I mean, troubleshooting today is exactly the same as the scientific method I learned in grade school. You just have to keep applying it. I, I really like that. And encouraging and talking about it, I think, makes it with the youth. I mean, my daughter just did a coding camp uh, over summer for a week, just a couple of weeks ago, and she was one of two two girls in the entire coding group. And even then, to me, I was a little bit surprised. I mean, it doesn't bother my daughter or the other girl that was in the thing. They just became buddies and even going to have playdates together from now on, you know, like so they, they work it out. But it, it's, it's, it's even surprised me because I was like, come on, at this day and age, at that age, every, all girls play Roblox. They all play Minecraft. So why aren't they in the coding class with the boys, right? So starting that pipeline young so that they're, they're there and, like you said, have, have that roadmap of experience that makes them qualified for a company like Lux later on is really important. And I think it's like, for me, it's super important too. Part of it is representation also. It's, you know, the video that we just put out for Lux talking about what we do as an organization shows some of our female leadership. It also shows some of our female technical leadership. And that I think is really important. It's important for little girls to watch the behind the scenes of The Mandalorian and see that it's not all white guys. And it's not that white guys aren't incredibly wonderful and accomplished. And, you know, they kind of get a bad rap nowadays because it's sort of hard to be them, I guess. But the truth is, like, I'm okay with the inequality for a little while. I I want those voices out there. And I think that um, actually one of our founders who I am 
constantly amazed as he continues to go out and speak for our organization. He and I had a conversation about filming that video when I was feeling uncomfortable and I wasn't sure I wanted to be on video. And he said, you know, we need these voices out there. It's important. It's important for your daughter, Anna, to watch that video and know that her mom's friend is doing this thing, which makes it possible and opens up that that opportunity. We have to show the possibility. Uh, Al and I got in this conversation the other day about so many actors whose kids become actors. And we said, one of the big things we think is that like they see it as a career. It's a possibility. It's not just this far off thing where these people in Hollywood do this job. It's the thing dad goes to every day in order to do his job. Right. And I think it's that vision that allows people to see it as possible. And when we do that, I think that's literally the thing that's going to get us over the hump. Um, it's not the only thing. There's a lot of other processes that are necessary. You know, um, we donate to Girls Who Code and different organizations that are out there doing it. My own niece, you know, I work with her uh, on her stuff and like, you know, make sure she has the computers that she needs and the things that allow her to get forward in technology. The kids around me, I have conversations about the exciting ideas they have and they have amazingly exciting ideas. All of those things are part of the puzzle. We just have to keep participating in it. So that's as individuals, but then like the corporate, how do they like, I mean, their responsibility or their goal is to make money, right? And hire the right person too. Well, one of the things is, you know, there are a lot of responsible corporations, right? We as an organization are very focused at increasing and making sure there's more voices. Again, we're not increasing our diversity because we want to be more diverse. We're increasing our diversity because we want different voices at the table. We want to hear from more people. It's not like a corporate checkpoint, right? Oh, we're more diverse now. That's fantastic. No, no, no. We recognize that when we have more voices at the table, we make better decisions. When we have more people who can give us their opinion, when we make it so that we don't just hire those people, but they are vocal and able to express their conversations, we make better decisions as an organization. That's why it's important. So it's really hard to do that in some large corporate areas. And it's one of the reasons I chose to move into a smaller company because I can influence that more. And I do think it's important and I can build up more people to a higher level by being in this smaller organization. WDI will get there eventually. <laughs> I think a lot of companies around the world have to first acknowledge the history of maybe particular biases that have been held and then start to routinely pull them down and attack them. And that requires a company effort and individuals like yourself to, you know, take a look at it and start that extra. It is extra work, I guess. I mean, you've got to, like you said, the resume, they didn't apply. The resumes didn't come in of that diversity. So you have to go find that. You can't just wait for that to, uh, and there's something like statistically that that women will not apply for the job unless they're like 100% qualified for all the items in the job description, whereas men will apply for it when it's only like if they cover about 70%, 60% of, of the best qualifications. And I, I find that fascinating because I think also in, in my own in my own thing, if I looked at a job description, like, yeah, I, I don't really know how to do that. I don't really know how to do that. Maybe it's not for me kind of thing, you know, and that that psychology should change, I think, by building confidence in, in women and even, you know, underrepresentative BIPOC and et cetera, et cetera. And it needs to, needs to start to change, but yeah, you've got to go find them. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. Um, I almost quoted that, that statistic earlier. I think about it a lot. I also, in my career have had the opportunity to, I've taken a lot of jobs that I wasn't sure I was ready for, for sure. Head of automation at CERT coming off of cruise ships. I was like, yeah, going to be great going to be fantastic. And it worked out fine. And it doesn't always, I'm sure. But in general, you know, I do believe that sometimes you just have to, what do they say, fake it till you make it and put that smile on your face and say, I'm going to go learn this thing. I mean, jumping from the world of show control and programming and what I had always done to this world was certainly nerve wracking. But I had the opportunity today to sit in a conversation with a client and have a strong opinion of something that adds value to their what they're looking for. And the reality of like the skills are transferable. Something else that I think is huge is surrounding yourself with peers that can see you and what you're good at and what you want to do 
and helping you define those things and see what else might be possible. Because I think that that makes a really big difference. Sometimes we can't see it ourselves that we're totally qualified for that job. Sometimes we need someone to be like, no, no. Or we need to call our friends when things are, and say, hey, I'd love for you to apply for this. Oh, I'm not qualified. Yes, you are. You should apply for this. You would be great. So I think a lot of that is, you know, I think that, you know, straightening each other's uh, tiaras and saying, no, no, you would be fantastic at this and reminding each other that that is the case. Yeah, I've recently been doing a recruitment drive for the company that I've been working for. And I actually called up a few women and be like, where's your resume? Put it in. Where where is it? I can't see it. It's not on the application. Come on. (laughs) So, yeah, it's good. I, a few years ago, I was part of hiring someone and literally there wasn't a single non-male resume and I refused to start interviews. I said, there's, I, no, I completely refuse. Out of the hundred resumes we got, three of them were women. And to be fair, those three women were not qualified. So let's go find some more. Cause like, I, I'm not going to start this process when the only option is this. Again, it's not that there aren't fantastically talented people out there and we should always hire, I believe we should always hire the best person for the role. I just want to get more people into the interview. I just want to give them the chance. And to do that, I need more resumes. And to get more resumes, I have to convince more little girls that math and science are really cool. <laughs> totally willing to do it. I think they're very cool. I love them. Yeah. <laughs> I think they are too. And, you know, like Anna said, in this day and age, I'm surprised that it's still a battle we're fighting, but it's definitely still a battle we're fighting. Well, I'm actually, even with math, I'm surprised that I still hear people saying that it's really hard or they're not, you know, like very, I don't know, like for me, it's especially math is so creative, so open, so it's everything and anything you want it to be. So I really like it. It is. I think there's also people who just see the world very differently. Uh, When I was back in school, one of my dearest friends could not get through college algebra, not for the life of her. And she was super smart. She was in all these, you know, writing classes and English classes with me. And she was incredibly intelligent. It wasn't that she wasn't that. She just could not get some of the mathematical concepts. And I think for me, that really opened my mind to the fact that people just have completely different ways of seeing the world. I Sometimes I say we see the world through a tunnel of our past and that past can fill all these different things. And it leads us to form opinions about ourselves, about who we're interacting with and about whether we can do math or not sometimes. Um, and it was just really interesting to see how other people's brains work and what is easy for them. And I mean, it's one of the things I absolutely love about working with new teams is figuring out the things that everybody's great at and the things that everybody just doesn't want to do or doesn't like or isn't good at. And then figuring out how to put that whole team together to make it so that, you know, we are greater by the power that we bring together versus the power we had on our own. But I think to do that, you have to really listen to what people want and where they are and what they're capable of. And then maybe push them a little bit towards something that isn't exactly the thing they think they're great at, but they might be great at. And then kind of form that that great big piece. When I interviewed at Cirque, I was told later that one of the questions they liked is I asked what role they were trying to fill. Because clearly they were hiring a stage manager. But stage managers at Cirque, as Anna knows, do a lot of different roles, right? Some people are really good at casting. Some people are really good at the rehearsals. Some people are great callers. Some people aren't great callers. You know, it's all kinds of different jobs that you do well. And the person who I was replacing had been really strong with their lineup and understanding the puzzle of how the show goes together. And thankfully, that was something I like really loved and was excited to get into. And so I was able to help the team immediately by filling the thing that the person who left was the greatest at. And then, you know, also slowly took the things that I was really good at and that I was interested in and filled those in as well. But I think when you're filling a team, sometimes you have to look at like, what is the piece that was just removed? How do I find someone who helps me fill that piece? That's a really interesting um, question and approach. And I think that's also just a great way to approach somebody applying for a job, because especially in our industry, what a stage manager does or what a technical director does or what does automation person does varies from show to show and genre to genre and the roles and responsibilities within it and something that I've been asking recently is like if you were to take a role what would you expect though that that role to be what are you best at what is your 
if you could shape your if you could shape your own role, what would that be? Because also, like if if people apply for a certain position and they suddenly get in and be like, "Oh, this is far more technical than I expected it to be," and there's no creativity in it, I'm not going to enjoy it. When you hear it from people's own words about what they're most interested in, then you can think about creating the team that, like you said, with your team fits the most strengths and weaknesses within those things, rather than shoehorning anybody particularly into the job description, right? So I've started to shift my thought process a lot recently about that because um, the team dynamic, as you just expressed before, is really important. Yeah, I um, for years I sort of was a self-styled grammar police of a type, right? And I looked at people who didn't know how to properly use grammar and I looked down upon them for sure, right? Certainly like, ugh, this is ridiculous. And then there was a really interesting conversation that happened with someone who was like, oh, someone sent in their resume with these grammar errors. I would never hire this person. And I was like, think of the thing you possibly just closed your door to. Maybe they're a super creative thinker. Maybe they're a super out of the box thinker. Maybe that's why their resumes and comic sans, although I still have issues with comic sans and resumes and resumes that are in doc. Please, people, if you're listening, do not ever send me a resume that's a dot doc. Please make it a PDF. Please, please, please. <laughs> but I realized that, you know, through making these judgments that I think we all do and we all come up and it's funny and we use it, I was closing myself off to people that had things to offer. And so, you know, interviews are hard and uh, deciding that someone's the right person is hard. So it's really just about getting to know that person and figuring it out. Um, my favorite question that came from one of the producers I work with that we've asked a lot lately is, what do you not like about your job? What is the part of your job that you have to do that you're not a fan of? Amusingly, we've been interviewing lately for production coordinators and every single person has said second meal. So... <laughs> which is also fairly high on my list of things I hate to be responsible for because you can never make everyone happy. But I think it's an interesting way to see like, what's your favorite part of your job? What's the thing that you don't like about this job? What is the thing you would choose not to do? It's not that you don't do it. And it's not that you might not be great at it. But what's the thing you don't really like? Well, maybe there's one of us who likes that better. Or maybe we can just all bond over the fact that we all don't like that part of the job. That makes me think that if we all have to do it and we don't like it as a royal we maybe it leads me to one of your ideas of technology to improve the world uh, chipotle's group order is the greatest thing known to man you send everyone a link and they order their own chipotle and then you pay with one credit card and you're done <laughs> that's the way to get over all of those problems <laughs> <laughs> Technology forcing people to order their own second meal. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, I don't have to worry about how many chickens and how many vegans and how many things I have to have for everybody. And, oh, that person doesn't eat dairy. I mean, I'm in California, right? So mm -hmm. no dairy, nor, no gluten. I have someone with a vegetable allergy. It's just, it's very, very difficult to order a second meal and make sure that- Is that a thing? A vegetable fed. allergy? Yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. Wow. People are allergic to tomatoes. is not uncommon. Um, and it makes it really challenging. And the truth is like, you know, as stage managers, I want to care for my team. I want to make sure I'm not just ordering second meals. So they have food. I'm ordering second meal because they've worked, you know, 10 and 12 hours at that point. And I want to mm. make sure that they're nourished going forward. So if I order something they can't eat, I've defeated my purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are the other ways you think technology is going to be improve the world, seeing that you are in the cutting edge of of some of the technology and entertainment. I'm really excited to see where technology takes us over the next five to 10 years. Uh, the game engine technology, I think is really fascinating. What are the things you can do at a game engine and yet not without human intervention? Like there have definitely been movies that are done completely in a game engine. And I think that's interesting. And I think it's a great form of technology, but for me, it doesn't inspire me. I'm inspired by us being able to get together in a space and create. It comes from that, hey, kids, I've got a barn. Let's put on a show theory of like, I mean, I was definitely putting on shows in barns at about 10, 11 years old. So 
it's still that same feeling. It's just a much more expensive barn we're all standing in to put that together. So I think this technology is so new that what I'm really excited is to see what that looks like in, in five years. You know, does that look like a point where we've, you know, essentially filmed an entire movie where everything was done within this volume and every shot was able to be done within this game engine and assets were formed ahead of time and we walked away every day and went, wow, that's amazing. I know exactly what shot I got. Not three months later after post-production, right now, today, I walk out of the stage, I know I got the shot. I'm excited for the possibility of what that is, but I think it's going to take First of all, we've got to get this technology out here. More people have to understand it. More people have to have the opportunity to actually use it and get how this, how it works. And then creatives can start to, to take that next leap of like, I guarantee there's things I haven't thought of that they're going to think of that we can do with this technology. That's why they're very, very good at their jobs. And I'm excited to see what they do with that next step. And I can also understand that that, that setup's probably hugely expensive, so not yet accessible to lower budget groups and people that don't have the funds to make movies in that manner, right? Well, I think there's a little combination of that. So first of all, we are building more and more stages, which lowers that entry point, because instead of having to build it for yourself, you can rent it for a day or two. Um, It's still expensive. It still takes a lot of people. But the truth is, like, you can use the game engine on a monitor with my iPhone and with an action figure, and I can still create this amazing like in-camera visual effects. So it's possible at a very low entry point. Um, and one of the amazing things is the company we work with has made the softwares available to the world. So for free. So anyone can go on, learn about it, start that first film, and figure out what they want to do for a very low entry point. It's not wholly there. Obviously, you're right. Independent filmmakers... Um, people out there who are really on the lower end of the budget scale, it's going to be a while before it's available. But we all know the way we get technology to be more affordable is get more people to use it. These little things were worth a whole lot, you know, <laughs> would be a lot more expensive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just so, just so it, so I understand the the context with the screen, and you've, you're you're in that in that environment, but. From a floor perspective and foreground props, those things still go into that shoot. So you've got the screens around you, but you you probably avoid shooting the floor because it's probably a studio floor, right? And then you've got props in the foreground. Like, tell us a little bit. I, I just need to understand the mechanics of that. <laughs> yeah, so basically, you know, the game engine has the opportunity to take that volume LED wall and we see what's beyond it. So imagine it's a window and we're seeing what's beyond it. What's in front of it, rocks, sand, sets, uh, desks, boats, all the different things we've seen recently, cars, um, actually exist in real space. And then the, uh, the way the camera, the camera is recognized as to where it is and offers parallax into the space. So basically based on where the camera is and where the wall is and all the things that are between, it determines where that space is beyond it so that you get that 3D effect of looking past. Same thing we do in attractions. When you come past in a vehicle and we've adjusted to your eye point so that it looks like you're looking off into space, um, they're just doing it at a much higher level than we ever did. So yeah, you've got actual practical effects that your cast is interacting with in that stage. And then the the camera, you know, you only matters what the camera sees in the end, right? You can have a lot of cool stuff, but if the camera doesn't catch it, then it doesn't make it into the final product. So the, it's what the actual camera sees. Ah, oh, super fun. I'd love to be a fly on the wall to watch a, a shoot for a day in, in a place like that. It'd be super cool. Yeah, uh, not to continue to support my, my previous employer, but the behind the scenes stuff, on Disney Plus for Mandalorian, does there's a technology episode which does a really good job of explaining how this works. And then more recently, Epic Games released their 427, which shows a film that was shot and then also shows conversations with filmmakers and directors and how and the things that were the advantages of shooting in the LED volume with the current game engine. So there's some cool stuff very recently within the last few weeks that's come out that shows a lot more about how all those things happen. I just had this wild thought on like how all the LED and AV stuff is increasingly being up for everyone to at least take a peek and see how it works. 
and read manuals and all those things and somehow uh when it comes to more like live entertainment stuff we're still very close to ndas and ip things protection. more yeah more protective more jealous of our work yeah i mean i think a lot of that has to do with the attempt to bring this to the masses means that, you know, it's so new that we have no choice but to get out there and talk about it and talk about what's possible. Again, I need a fast army of people to go do this work over the next few years. And they're probably not in the marketplace right now, which means I have to inspire them to go learn the skills that are going to be the thing that I need to in order to take this forward. Theater in many ways is an exclusionary space. I know it's not what we want it to be, and I know we want to open it up to more people, but in many ways, it starts from a place of only these people in this space can create this thing. And I feel like one of the things that I hear a lot of people currently working on, which I think is amazing, is how do we open that space up? How do we change the entry level? How do we change it so that, I mean, my very first job out of college as a dancer, I made $160 a week. And I paid for housing out of that. Like, I could not have done that if my parents weren't paying for my car and giving me some way of buying groceries. And if I didn't, if I had to save for all of my expenses for college over the course of the summer, right, it would not have been available to me. So I have to recognize the privilege of that and say, how do we open those doors? We can we can raise salaries, but honestly, unless we raise ticket prices, that gets really complicated. And I don't want to raise ticket prices because I want, you know, somebody to be able to take their three kids to the show and not be an arm and a leg. And I don't, you know, we have to find other ways of making this a way that we live in this country, a way that kids can go do theater as youngsters and get paid something that allows them to feed themselves. Part of it's dealing with the student, but it's all a big problem, right? We got to deal with the student loan debt. We got to deal with health insurance. We got to, all of those things feed into people being able to follow their passion. And I think the more passion than we have, the better the space will be. But yeah, I think that theater is an active process of trying to become more inclusive. And part of that is going to be lowering that entry level, the barrier, not the entry level, the barrier to entry so that more people get the opportunity to do it. I mean, I didn't grow up with a lot of extra dollars in my parents' house, but I still recognize the privilege I had to do the things that I did. I had a car. It may have been in a few accidents, but I had a car and it ran and it got me to and from rehearsal. <laughs> my mother will watch this and cry, remembering the number of accidents I got. I, I went to do summer stock when I was 19 and I had told them I had a car and I could drive. And someone watching this who knows me at that age is like, wait, you couldn't? Yeah, no. I got my driver's license the week before I left and I did an absolutely horrible job on my driver's exam and I cried and I said, I have this job and I have to have a car and I have to be able to drive and she gave me my driver's license and it basically learned how to drive that summer actively <laughs> while working. <laughs> so if you live in a summer stock town, be aware that you're probably surrounded by a bunch of kids who really don't know how to drive. They're figuring it out. <laughs> <laughs> totally noted oh my goodness <laughs> oh. as I said I've done a lot of things that were a little scary and I wasn't sure I was fully qualified for including driving I, well, got, that, better. That, I got better that, is, that in its very essence is what you should encourage young little girls to do no matter what path they're pursuing go in dive in not the car accident part but take the jobs that you're not quite uh think you're not quite ready for so what would you say, I think you've kind of articulated it, but we always wrap up our podcasts in this way. So we're going to, we're going to ask you this question anyway. What's, what do you think, what's the, what do you like most about your job? I like most about my job, empowering people to use that technology and build creativity. There is no single better moment than being on a stage with a problem. Something's not working. Something's not there. I actually love that part of the job. Because I know that the team that I have around me is the best team in the world. There's no one more qualified to solve the problem we have on our stage in that moment. Um, and not because there are people who aren't better at, but we know our problem. We are the best people to solve it. 
And 98% of the time we come out the other side with a solution. So I really love that energy feeling of like, we have a problem, we have a plan and we're putting it and we're executing it. That moment is my favorite moment in the world. So our flip question, you've uh, spoken to at least one of the things, but if you could change anything, what would you change in the industry or in your work or the way we do things? I think I've spoken to it. I want to see more diversity in the space. I want to hear more voices. I, and it's not, there's so many different levels of what diversity means. Diversity of socioeconomic background, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of, of skills, diversity of gender and of BIPOC and all of those things. But all of that brings different voices. And I'm really, I'm dedicated to increasing that diversity across the industry. Um, across our conversations, across every stage I'm on, um, because I think the more voices we invite, and, and that can be as simple as inviting people to the conversation that are already on the stage, making sure that they have a voice. I think it's incredibly important to get us to this next level. The next great idea is probably not going to come from all of the people who keep speaking. It's going to come from that person who's been sitting in the back, forming an idea to come up with this they're going to blow all of our minds and I just can't wait to hear it. Amazing. Where can our audience learn more about you or if they have any further questions, is there a way that they could contact you um, if they want to apply as an underrepresentative uh, group to Lux? Let us know. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. It's actually a great way to reach me. Um, I'm, I'm pretty generous about my accepts. Uh, please don't try to sell me LED. But other than that, I'm very interested in hearing from people. Um, and uh, I'm happy to, you know, have a 15 minute conversation. Uh, I love coffee chats. I've been doing them for about a year. Uh, reach out and I'm happy to have that coffee chat and talk about not just where you are in the industry and what you're interested in, but also like what is the thing that, you know, you think you want to go to next? Because I, I legit love hearing from people what they think they want to do and where they want to go and what they want to change. I'm inspired by all of the amazing people that are in these organizations. Oh, that's an amazing offer. So I hope uh, some of our audience take you up on that. Thank you so much, Danny, for uh, hanging out with us today. It's been really good to see you and hear about everything that you're doing at the moment. It's amazing. Thanks. It's really great to see both of you. And, um, you know, from across very far, far away, it's nice to see your faces. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There is a link in our podcast description where you can send us your requests and guest nominations. Theater Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcast episodes for free. If you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast notes. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theater Art Live, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theaterartlive.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theater Art Live podcast.